Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Each inflection point in this nation's history represents a fundamental choice. I believe that America at this moment is facing such a choice. And <clears throat> the choice is this. Are we going to continue with an economy where the overwhelming share of the benefits go to big corporations and the very wealthy? Or are we going to take this moment right now to set this country on a new path? As the Democrats press forward with their $3.5 trillion reconciliation package, media outlets continue to struggle with the Byzantine parliamentary maneuvers required to enable legislation to move through the Senate under a simple majority process. The confusion has led to multiple cycles of coverage suggesting that this or that Democratic priority had been killed or this or that provision had been approved. But in reality, the bill is still being written, with the ultimate authors picking from among the various pieces of text to pass through committees, ditching other elements, and adding some that never went through the process. The destination for the legislation is the House Budget Committee and, most importantly, finally, the House floor. That pathway shifts the power dynamic at play. Democratic representatives Kathleen Rice, Scott Peters, and Kurt Schrader have been the focus of significant and well-earned ire for blocking a measure in the Energy and Commerce Committee this week that would allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices directly with pharmaceutical companies. And the Ways and Means Committee has taken heat for not including strong capital gains tax hikes in the title they passed this week. But party leadership can reinsert those provisions through what's known as a manager's amendment. In the case of prescription drugs, for instance, it means that those three members' opinions on the provision are only worth caring about if they're strong enough to drive them to vote the whole package down. And if a member of Congress is opposed to the bill entirely, as Schrader has suggested that he is, then what he thinks of any individual provision is meaningless. Only his vote on the House floor matters. Both Peters and Rice, for their part, are expected to vote to approve the final package on the House floor, having made their stand on behalf of Big Pharma in committee. Peters happens to sit on the Budget Committee, where he can again register his objection harmlessly because the rest of the committee is broadly supportive of the drug pricing effort. The Budget Committee is chaired by Representative John Yarmouth of Kentucky. He's an outspoken progressive and has recently become an adherent of modern monetary theory. Other than Peters, there aren't a whole lot of Democrats on the committee to worry about. One member who does have a centrist voting record, Jim Cooper of Tennessee, is facing a serious primary challenge from the left back in his district from Justice Democrat Odessa Kelly. The Budget Committee is generally more progressive than more powerful committees like Ways and Means or Energy and Commerce. That's a result of the structural corruption on which Washington's political economy is built. It comes down to fundraising. Those two powerful panels have jurisdiction over the economy's major power centers. Therefore, those industries shower members of those committees with campaign donations. Like a host shaping itself synergistically with a parasite, members of Congress who are most eager for corporate contributions then tend to be the ones who fight for spots on the committee, and they're the ones who are awarded those spots by leadership. Naturally, 
That means more corporate-friendly members wind up stocking the most powerful committees, tipping their politics in that direction. The concentration of those members on powerful committees means that less powerful committees, like budget, education and labor, judiciary, veterans affairs, wind up being stacked with progressives. Under regular order, that situation works out well for corporate lobbyists. But in a reconciliation process that empowers the budget committee, it's a less effective defense against this landmark piece of legislation. And on the House floor, Democrats can afford to lose just three votes. And both Schrader and Stephanie Murphy of Florida are expected to be no's. Representative Jared Golden of Maine is always a tough vote for Democrats to get. But one formerly reliable no vote, Representative Dan Lipinski of Illinois, was knocked into retirement in 2020 thanks to a progressive primary challenge by the seat's current incumbent, Progressive Marie Newman. To talk about this whole dynamic, we're joined by Ways and Means Committee member Brendan Boyle, who represents a district in the Philadelphia area. Congressman Boyle, welcome to Deconstructed. Yeah, great to be with you. First of all, for the listeners, I got to get the, the conflict of interest out of the way. Congressman Boyle's father, to correct me if I'm wrong, came to this country from County Donegal in what, the 1970s? Yeah, ni- yeah, nineteen. he was 19 years old in 1970. And my own descendants are Boyles. In fact, Boyles on both sides of my mother's family, which is, I know, unusual, but let's not, we won't do any Irish stereotypes there. Uh, <laughs> but that dates back to the mid-19th century. But there can't be that many Boyles back in County Donegal. So 200 years ago or so, they we may have been cousins or something along those lines. But the Irish... They don't get along with every one of their cousins. So in that sense, it's not really a conflict of interest. Am I right? It could be a conflict of interest or it could just be a conflict. So, exactly. <laughs> so either either way, but no, there's a lot of folks from the northwest of Ireland, County Donegal, which is beautiful, but was always historically a very poor area who who came to Pennsylvania. And, you know, my dad is, uh, you know, my roots are, are kind of the later than than most Irish Americans that that you would find, but it's, it's you know it's a uh, not uncommon story, but it's kind of amazing. And as I recall, I think one of Ryan's ancestors is Patrick Boyle, which is the same name as my great grandfather and my great great grandfather. So mm-hmm. there's probably a pretty good, you know pretty good chance we are somewhere related. That's right, Patrick Francis Boyle came came here out of the Great Hunger when he was like four or five, driven out by the English genocide. You know, on on that topic, and I, I, I know we don't, we're not going into this too much because there's a lot of other things going on in D.C., but it's important to note, because this is always a, a pet peeve of mine, that, you know, the term the famine is used as if it was this benign, horrible twist of Mother Nature, and that was it. The potato blight affected a number of countries, including the United States, Belgium, England, Scotland. In only one country was it a famine that killed over a million people and forced another two and a half million to emigrate. The famine part, not the potato blight, but the famine part was the result of colonial occupation. And fast forward to to the present day, we can't be ignorant or naive about the link between politics and what we see happening either in nature or other sort of events that are just described benignly as famines as if politics has nothing to do with it and why the food isn't reaching the people. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, well said. And so you're now serving on the Ways and Means Committee, which journalists are required to refer to as the powerful 
Ways and Means Committee. <laughs> it just this week finished marking up its portion of the reconciliation package, which included the, the revenue raisers, the tax credits and the and the yeah. tax increases that would then be used to offset, you know, whatever whatever spending is done. On the other side, the most high profile loss for the White House was not getting what's called you know stepped up basis, which in other words, people can continue to pass down vast fortunes as inheritances to their children without those being taxed. If if you are on the receiving end of a gift, that's legally classified as a gift and you pay a gift tax. If you get that gift because somebody died and bequeathed it to you now, you don't get taxed on it. So do you expect that that could come back in and wh- how did that fall out? You know, stepped up basis is one of these issues that everyone seems to agree is egregious and a pretty glaring loophole. Even Donald Trump, if you remember, in 2016, was harping about getting rid of stepped-up basis. And yet, of course, when he had the opportunity with the TCJA, what they called their, their big tax giveaway, $2 trillion, that went primarily to the richest 1% that they passed in 2017, they did nothing on stepped-up basis. We have somewhat of a reform in there, but you know, candidly did not go as far as as I would like to see. I'm on the the bill that Bill Pascrell has has been pushing for quite some time that would fully reform it. Now, where do we go from here? Look, um, there are still issues that need to get worked out within the House just to get to 218, or actually I think it's 217 we need at the moment, before we even talk about the, the Senate. So I don't think it's totally dead. I will say, though, that let's not let just this one issue obscure just how many revenue raisers there are targeting the super wealthy in this country. I I mean, I really think this is something quite historic and without precedent, or certainly without precedent in our lifetime, the sort of, as the Republicans on the committee kept pointing out over and over again over the four days, just how much revenue we are raising from the richest richest Americans, and I mean the top 1%. And what are the ones that are going to pack the biggest punch? Uh, no question, the 3% surcharge on those over $5 million, which wasn't even something that was being talked about publicly. As I think you know, I, I'm one of the main House sponsors of the wealth tax, mm-hmm. which is Elizabeth Warren's bill in the Senate. And even though the approach that passed Ways and Means is income-based as opposed to wealth-based, I do believe the increased focus in our society on the hyper-wealthy, particularly those who are getting away with underpayment of taxes or outright no payment of of taxes, as ProPublica has shown repeatedly, I absolutely believe that discussion influenced how we got to this 3% surcharge on those making $5 million a year. And then, of course, canceling what the Republicans did four years ago, which cut the the top marginal rate from 39.6 down to 37. We put it back to 39.6. And then obviously on the corporate side, the five and a half percentage point increase also brings in just a a ton of revenue, about $600 billion. And I I thought making the corporate tax rate progressive was an an interesting innovation. Where did that come from? Describe that a little bit. Pretty late. That did not get much discussion within the committee, but it, it's something that I obviously I voted for it, but I certainly support it because you can argue, in fact, for um, corporations under a, a certain amount, I think it's $400,000, uh, 
they're getting a, a tax cut. The tax increase and a pretty substantial one is coming on those that are that are above that mark. What are, what are some other big ones that are taking a swing at the rich? Yeah, I was. I mean, the, the surcharge I mentioned, the going from uh, thirty seven back to thirty nine point six, the corporate tax increase. Those are really, I would say, the top three. There are other, you know, sort of revenue raisers, especially on the global corporate side. Obviously, this has been something that that President Biden has been pushing for. The fact that we have 132 countries around the world that now are agreeing to finally end the race to the bottom by putting in that minimum global tax of at least 15%, that will help us substantially. There's really very little question about that. Which is actually, I think, a much bigger deal than people realize because the rich had become a cosmopolitan global class before the governments had caught up to them. And countries like Ireland, actually, were figuring out ways, and Delaware, were fi- you know figuring out ways for them to. <laughs> you're you're really going after Biden there, aren't you? <laughs> That's Between right. the, the Irish all, all of his roots, getting Delaware and Scranton, um, they are finding ways to attract you know for for a pittance, you know the the Caymans, you know just for the fifty dollar fee or whatever, you know attracting these vast fortunes that would then be that would then be sheltered. But finally the planet is moving in in the opposite direction. What drove that? You know, this was clearly a priority uh, of this administration pretty early on. Secretary Yellen has briefed us on the committee on it, how much time that that she spent on this issue to to reach agreement. And and the issue is, and look, and I know Donald Trump kind of beat up on Ireland a lot because that's an example he would cite. The Irish corporate tax rate's 12.5%. I do think that Ireland kind of gets a little bit uh, of too much criticism on this because they actually, they are the European headquarters for so many different American companies that do have a physical presence and employ, you know, something like 150,000 people with a, you know, highly well-educated workforce. That's one issue. Where you have the tax havens, though, is actually something different. That's where, you know, someone sets up a P.O. box in the Caymans or a P.O. box elsewhere has no real physical presence, but they're inverting or they're using that and then paying a a lower rate. So I actually think it's a little bit more complicated. I I think sometimes Ireland, while they do have a low corporate rate, they're not really the sort of tax haven the way others are. Be that as it may, though, low tax rate countries out there hurt the rest of us. And, you know, the fact that we could all get on the same page and end this sort of competition that's a race to the bottom, I think that's significant. By the way, I've had this conversation with a couple of, of my colleagues here. I wish there's something we could do at the federal level to prevent states from doing that. Because I remember when as a state legislator, and I would see, you know, a company would threaten to move wherever they were, and then other states would essentially bid on how much money they could throw those companies to get them to relocate. Ultimately, though, I mean, the most famous example recently was Amazon, right? With right, and then surprise, surprise, they ended up in in New York and D.C. or the, uh, New York and the D.C. area. But the sort of wild packages they were getting people, uh, they were getting local and state governments to throw their way. It's just egregious. So unfortunately, actually, that race to the bottom still happens here in the U.S. But at least globally, on this, for the first time ever, we're going to do something about it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So having witnessed the Republican tax cut that went through the House so quickly, yeah. to talk a little bit about what lessons Democrats learned from watching that happen. And, and in other words, where are the decisions being made about what will wind up in the final package? You know, with the, we call it the Powerful Ways and Means Committee, but in some ways, is, the, is what Ways and Means, what Energy and Commerce are sending to the Budget Committee or are sending to whoever in leadership is going to work on this, are these suggestions that are going to be rewritten by leadership? Or, you know, what is what is the balance here between what the committees are doing and what process is going on both behind the scenes and then in the budget committee and, and in mm-hmm. whatever manager's amendment winds up on the floor or in committee? A, a couple things there. I mean, first, I would say as far as the Republican tax cut, the TCJA that they passed four years ago, do you know and Please go back, and Gallup does a great job of keeping historical data. Please verify this, because I've never seen it anywhere in print. I believe that, you know, first I know that poll after poll showed that underwater. On average, most polls showed the support for the the Republican tax cut for the rich. Somewhere in the high 30s, 40% support, Mm -hmm. with a, a slight majority actually opposed to it. The part that, I, that I'm that i saying I believe is historic about that is I think it is the only tax cut in the history of polling that had a higher disapproval rating than approval rating. Typically, tax cuts are popular. Typically, people want them. I remember thinking that Paul Ryan seemed to be willing to trade the majority for the tax cut. Yeah, which was, look, I mean, <laughs> that, that is remarkable that a tax, not a tax increase, but a tax cut. The, the other stat I do remember and was able to verify is that the Bill Clinton tax increase was more popular than the Republican tax cut. And that shows you a real shift, I think, in the way people are thinking about this. And that is that people know the very ultra-rich are getting away with bloody murder when it comes to taxes. They see the way the last 20 years, so much of the wealth has gone to the hyper wealthy. I mean, forget the top 1%, the top one tenth or one half of one tenth or 1%, that either through legal means and or illegal means that they are underpaying or just not, not paying at all. So then when you had a Republican tax bill, when the CBO found that 83% of it goes to the, uh, the richest 1%, I think there, that's part and parcel of why that ended up being so unpopular. And there were two reasons, in my view, 
ultimately why we won back the House in 2018. One of those two was the, the Republican tax bill. So I learned the lesson of that is that if you do unpopular things, it's going to hurt you. And if you do popular things and the right thing, the people will be with you. And I think that's clearly the case with this. I, I've been you know, pretty public and probably out on a limb saying that I would not vote for the infrastructure bill unless we, we also include with it reconciliation or basically the Build Back Better Act, paid family leave, universal pre-K, community college. These strike to the core reasons why I first registered as a Democrat in my early 20s over 20 years ago. It's a big reason why I'm here. This is a historic opportunity. I think this is only, in my lifetime, this is only the second time the, the window has opened to do really big things. It was open for a brief period in 2009, early 2010, and then this is only the second time. And before that, it was the 80s, the Reagan era. Clinton had a Democratic majority, but it was not really a... a it wasn't a time or an appetite for doing big things. In fact, quite the opposite. It was school uniforms and sort of more small ball measures. You really have to go back to the mid-1960s before there was, you know, the public really supporting or clamoring going in, in this sort of a, a big direction. So I, I think it's just an incredibly unique opportunity. And I feel, and maybe you can tell by the way I'm talking, I do feel a sense of urgency about it, that we better get it done, because I don't know when this opportunity will come again. And what's fascinating about this this moment and what you just talked about is that, so you're, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're both a member of the Progressive Caucus, but also in the New Democrat Coalition. Yeah, that's right. And, um, I, I can talk about that too. First, I, I'm not the, the only one. Well, let, well, let me ask you this, and then I, I do want to hear the, the background of that. So, the, you know, the New Democrats, speaking of Clinton, you know, they were they were kind of one of the major things they were organized around back in the late 80s, 90s was welfare reform. And today, they're among the leading champions of the child tax credit. Oh, yeah. You know, it's uh, Suzanne Delbeni. Susan Delbeni is, is the point person mm -hmm. on our, she's the head of the New Dems, and she is the really the point person on the child tax credit and very passionate about the issue. And she, she's just been pheno a phenomenal quarterback on this issue. And it's, it's just hard for me to get my head around because it appears 100% genuine that the that the new Dems are making this a major priority to get the child tax credit extended. This is 250 to $300 per child you know, per month. This is the provision that people keep talking about that can reduce child poverty by 50%. You know, this, this is one of the most transformative things in the package. So, yeah, so how on earth did the new Dems get there and <laughs> and how did how did you wind up with a foot in both caucuses or coalitions? I'm so glad that you brought it up because there's so many things in this reconciliation package. I didn't even mention I glossed over what is the single biggest reduction in child poverty in American history. Of course, that was passed for one year as part of the American Rescue Plan. And again, and this is an our figure, the projection is a more than 50% reduction in child poverty because of what we did already on the child tax credit. The challenge is that's only for one year and we want to, to make it permanent. And so that's the fight that's happening right now, which is part of, of this reconciliation bill and what we just passed out of the, uh, the Ways and Means Committee, um, you know, just, just a, a day ago. Now, in terms of, you know, progressive versus new Dems, and it shows you the way these titles or these labels are constantly 
changing and evolving. And a new dem today, as you pointed out, is not exactly the same as, as the 1990s. There are a number of us who are in both caucuses. First, I think that's a good thing. I, I hope, and I think that if you talk to Pramila Jayapal or if you talked to Susan Delbeni or Derek Kilmer, they would tell you that I tend to be someone who is a bridge. I work very closely with members across our, the ideological spectrum of Democrats. I think it would be, particularly with a three-seat majority, it would absolutely be horrible if we kind of balkanized into one camp or the other. It's also not an easy division in, in that sort of a way. For me personally, when it comes to economic issues, I am you know, more naturally at home in the Progressive Caucus. When it comes to internationalism, foreign affairs, I'm probably more naturally at home in, in the New Dems. So that's, you know, it's just me personally kind of a, a rule of thumb. But again, though, I, all of these labels are ultimately frustrating because I find that, you know, a lot of times they depend really on the person who's doing the labeling, their views. You know, I know having the same voting record in the same campaign, I was described literally as a progressive, as a moderate, as a conservative, as a populist, and as a centrist. <laughs> all in my original campaign for Congress in 2014 by others with exactly the same voting record. So, you know, in the end, I would say take all of these uh, with, with a bit of a grain of salt. And so the, the big fight, you know, is going to come down on the House floor. You know, if, yeah. if this goes through before, you know, Alcee Hastings' seat is filled, before Marsha Fudge's seat is filled, Democrats can lose three votes. And it appears like Stephanie Murphy, your colleague on the committee, and Kurt Schrader, are probably no votes, which doesn't leave Pelosi a whole lot of uh, breathing breathing room there. Do you suspect that there are going to be any any gangs that form around any particular issues that that are insurmountable? That say, you know, if if you don't include salt repeal, or if you don't include, well, they'll probably. I'm curious for your take on salt, actually, how that will wind up. But if you don't include X tax cut. You know we're out, and they and they stand behind that. And re- related to that, is Pelosi considered in the caucus a, a lame duck? Because if Democrats hold the majority, she can run again. Like there's this myth that she's term limited out. But my understanding of the deal that she struck is that she can run again, but she has to get two thirds of of the caucus to support her. So when people think of Pelosi, do they think of her as a lame duck? or not, because that that influences how much power she has over members. That is, that's the easiest question to uh, to answer. No, n- no one I know of thinks of, of Nancy Pelosi as a, as a lame duck. And frankly, given her experience and how many times she's been able to cobble together a coalition to get something passed, having someone like her in this position at a moment like this uh, is, is incredibly helpful. And she's also someone who has a lot of affection and credibility with a broad spectrum of the caucus. So it's, I think we're pretty fortunate at this moment in history to have her. And frankly, even those who might not agree with me on that, none of them would describe uh, Nancy as as a lame duck at all. So so that's not a, a worry or a concern. I've always been of the view, and I, I've said this publicly, I say it privately, it's not going to be one or the other. We're either going to have to, in some shape or form, do this all together, or it'll be nothing. I, I don't think it's going to be just infrastructure, but everything else 
gets cut to the wayside or vice versa the other way. And, and I think people have to understand that. I think also that if, you know, anyone attempts to really draw a line in the sand that ends up destroying this, there'll be a, a heavy political price to pay. I mean, it is on all of our shoulders. We have to deliver and get all of this done. So I think that sort of, I, I mean, I certainly feel that pressure. I've talked before about how I think this is an unbelievably unique moment in history. I feel fortunate to be in this position, but I also feel a certain responsibility with it that we absolutely have to get this done. And by this, I mean the whole package. And what what is the pressure like? Like, what's it what's it like to be this week a Kathleen Rice or a Schrader or a Peters who you know who vote down the the drug negotiation provision, energy and commerce, or the Josh Gottheimer's gang from from recently? What's it like to be a member of Congress going up against your party? Are members like that isolated in this environment, or are they voicing the concerns of others in the caucus who just aren't willing to kind of put their name to it? Hmm. Uh, it depends on the person. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't say any of those members, I mean, they're all different individuals. I'm friends with, with several of them. For any of them, I would not assume that their votes are ungettable. In fact, I think the votes of most of the people you mentioned are gettable. Congressman Schrader, um, you know, probably might be just ideologically the most centrist out of that group. So, him for principled reasons will have concerns about this bill that I don't share. So I, I think he, he will actually, you know, prove to be probably the hardest hurdle or one of the hardest hurdles for us to leap over. But look, it would be a mistake to attempt to isolate anyone or do any of that sort of approach, even though I know that for some that might be, you know, personally satisfying, especially after the controversial vote this week. The reality is that would be incredibly unwise. We have such a narrow majority. We have to get this done. As challenging as it might be and as not sexy as it may be, we just have to continue to reaching out to people, listen to them, do the hard work, and one way or the other get this done. And, you know, I know at the moment it looks challenging, but ultimately I do think we will because everyone is cognizant of the consequences of failure, both the policy consequences in terms of the negative effects in the lives of so many ordinary Americans, but then also the political consequences. It would be devastating politically for all of us if we didn't deliver on this. How hard is it to negotiate this without knowing kind of what the Senate is going to agree to? Is it, is it I, I understand it's creating some artificial scarcity and some bickering over, well, I want that $10 billion for my program. I, want, I need that $10 billion for this. Yeah, so that is the objection or the concern that I know, you know, my colleague and, and friend Stephanie Murphy is one person who has raised that, who when push comes to shove, I, I'm hopeful and optimistic we'll, we'll be able to win her support and get her to yes. But the concern that she raises, and on this, there are a number who have privately said it, that they don't necessarily want to vote for something. We get it passed in the House. They take what they perceive as a tough vote. And then suddenly here comes Kirsten Cinema, and the whole thing is, is blown up. And I, I can understand that concern. So the term that they use is pre-conferencing, which is, you know, one of these horrible capital inside baseball terms that just means getting some agreements beforehand before we ultimately put up the vote in the House. 
Having said that, though, I'm glad that we did what we did this week in the Ways and Means Committee by showing that we could produce, you know, three upwards of three and a half trillion dollars of revenue. It shows the Senate and particularly, you know, a couple of the, the most centrist senators that we're real about raising revenue. I mean, we just have the House Ways and Means Committee vote to raise a substantial and historic amount of revenue, mostly from very wealthy people or corporations. I forgot, I, when we're going through them before and you asked me about the top revenue raisers, I didn't even mention the increase in the top capital gains rate going from, from 20 to, to 25 or the net investment income tax that captures something like $250 billion. So the fact that we're able to show that and we only had one no vote on our side, I do think that shows a Chuck Schumer and shows other senators we're serious about this. And la- last question, like what on the SALT repeal, what is your guess of where, where this, yeah. this reconciliation project lands with the state and local tax deduction? So, you know, on, on some, and this might, you know, maybe speak to kind of my, my overall approach, some issues, you know, it's, it's really hard to compromise, right? It's a binary choice. Fortunately, this isn't one of them. So, you have on one side a concern that, hey, wait a minute, if we go back to the way it was pre-2017 and we remove that $10,000 cap on the ability to duck state and local taxes, if we go back to having no cap, the overwhelming majority of the benefit goes to very wealthy people. Okay, that's a legitimate argument. On the other hand, We know why that cap was put into place in the first place. It's not because Paul Ryan and Donald Trump suddenly had so much concern about rich people benefiting. They did it to go after blue states. They did it to go after states that properly fund public services, particularly public education. And so what that happens is if you are in the suburbs of Philadelphia and in Montgomery County and you were legitimately a middle-class person, the average house in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania has property taxes more than $10,000 a year. I, I no longer represent that area, but I used to, in, and I did in 2017. I would have teachers coming up to me who were solidly middle-class people saying, well, you know, I have $15,000 property tax bill. This supposed Republican tax cut ended up raising my taxes. So that's a legitimate concern too. Now, where I think we'll land, and the good news is on this issue, there actually is a pretty obvious way that you can satisfy both of those concerns. If you keep the concept of a cap, so you keep a salt cap, but you raise it. So instead of $10,000, if you raise it to 20 or 25,000, you now will take care of most of those solidly middle-class taxpayers in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, California, New York, et cetera, the DC area, And by the way, over time, that will include more places because it wasn't adjusted for inflation. So raising the cap, you now just helped those people for whom it was a tax increase. However, by making sure there's still a cap, you ensure that so much of the benefit doesn't go to the richest 1% or one-tenth of 1% who could be deducting, you know, $500,000 or a million dollars in property tax bills, state income tax bills, local income tax bills, et cetera. And by the way, within the Ways and Means Committee, there's pretty broad ideological, diverse support for that approach. I know when I spoke up on it, Lloyd Doggett, who's a very progressive member, voiced support for it, as did Brad Schneider, who's a very uh, moderate 
uh, member. And I would predict that in the end, that's where we'll land because it will provide, again, relief for those people who really got hit by it and are, you know, middle-class taxpayers, but at the same time ensuring that it's not, you know, a, a big giveaway to the richest 1%. I know I had said that last question, but one other, when do you think this happens? You know, you had the Gottheimer crew pushing it for 927, <laughs> but yeah, uh, is that is that possible? What's what's your guess of when this really like comes to a head? I, I'm I'm laughing because I have no idea, and anyone who says they know when this is all going to get done is is just delusional. I don't see any way it's done by September 27th. You would have to have a bunch of issues resolved in a very short period of time for us to make that. I hope that happens, but I would be very surprised if. If this were all wrapped up and completed by then, I just don't think that's that's really likely or, or possible. So I think this will be well into October would would be my prediction. And maybe Chantel Brown ends up being the deciding vote. <laughs> well, you know, we wouldn't be, by the way, I mean, how egregious it is that in Florida and in Ohio, you know, we have some congressional districts where people are going unrepresented because of the decisions that were made by Republican governors that I know it's a, a different, but it's a related topic. We would actually have a bigger majority at the moment. and, and those, Right, they purposely kept yeah. those two seats empty. I mean, in the case of Florida, I think until January, just you know, because of uh, obviously political decision by Ron DeSantis. It's one more way in which the other party has shown that it's walking away from democracy. Well, Congressman, thank you so much for joining me. All right, thank you. That was Brendan Boyle, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer, Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.